The theme for Advent this year is Untangling Christmas. Today, we will be untangling the biblical narrative from cultural mythology, as Pastor Hink said in the the way he put it in the bulletin, but I call it untangling the misconceptions about the people in the biblical Christmas story. Did you enjoy the video at the beginning of the service? It was called Christmas According to Kids. It was kind of funny, wasn't it? If you missed it or you are listening to this sermon online, you can go to this link here and view it, and it's really worth it to to do that. But the title of the message today is Every Nativity Play You've Ever Seen Was Wrong, at least about something. Most churches' nativity plays are done with children. Here are some pictures from past plays from our own church. Aren't these kids adorable? Here's some more recent ones. And more close-ups of some recent ones. And here we go with some past ones. These are a little bit earlier in our history. Yes. I think it's great that we involve our children in acting out the Christmas story. It's just that because these plays are many people's main understanding of the Christmas story, many of us assume things that aren't true, and we might learn some wrong lessons because of that. What we know about the birth of Jesus comes from two gospel books in the New Testament. And there's four gospels that tell the story of Jesus' life. If you don't know uh, why there's four, it's like having a car accident in the middle of the intersection and there's eyewitnesses on each corner, they're going to see the same accident, but they're going to see it from four different viewpoints, and although they're all four eyewitnesses, they are going to give some different details, but it's all the same overall thing, and that's the way the Gospels work in the New Testament about Jesus's life, but only two of these four Gospels tell us about Jesus's birth, but generally speaking, these are Matthew and Luke. Now, Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience, and therefore he expects the reader to know Jewish customs and vocabulary. Luke, on the other hand, wrote to a Gentile audience. Gentile just means anyone who's not Jewish, and therefore he explains Jewish customs and vocabulary. Now, Matthew is not big on details, but Luke is meticulous with details. Matthew uses Old Testament prophecy to show that Jesus is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. And the word Messiah means anointed one, and it's sort of like a redeemer, a rescuer, if you will, a deliverer. Luke, on the other hand, presents Jesus as the savior of the whole world. As far as the Christmas story is concerned, uh, Luke starts out, and he's in the green box, he starts out with the prophecy and birth of John the Baptist, who is the forerunner to the Messiah. Matthew, on the other hand, just starts with the Christmas story and doesn't talk about where John the Baptist came from, and he gives us Joseph's point of view. Luke, on the other hand, gives us Mary's point of view. Um, Tradition is that he interviewed Mary, so that makes sense. From Matthew, we learn about the Magi, which are sometimes called also the wise men, and King Herod and the murder of the innocent babies in Bethlehem, and also the Holy Family's flight to Egypt. Those things are not in Luke. And from Luke, we learn how and why Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem for Jesus to be born. In Matthew, they're in Nazareth, and then all of a sudden they're in Bethlehem, and we don't know how or why they got there. Luke gives us that background information of how and why they got to Bethlehem. 
From Luke, we also learned that, that Jesus was laid in a manger because there was no room for them anywhere else. The manger, by the way, is not the whole area where the animals were, but only the feeding trough. So that, that's where Jesus was laid as his first crib, was an animal's feeding trough. We also learn from Luke about the shepherds and the angels and Simeon and Anna, and those things are not in Matthew. So the way we get the nativity story is we piece together Jesus' birth story by combining information from both Matthew and Luke. I wish we had time to read through the narratives from Matthew chapters 1 and 2 and Luke chapters 1 and 2. These are long chapters, though, with 179 verses total. So I will just summarize the stories as we go through them in chronological order. But if you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to open it to the first two chapters of both Matthew and Luke so that you can refer to them as we talk about them, and we'll be kind of bouncing back and forth between Matthew and Luke. I wish we had time to talk about the misconceptions that we have about all of the people involved in the Christmas story, because what we would learn is fascinating, but we don't. So we'll narrow our focus to just some of the major players. We'll start with Luke 1, 26 through 38, when the angel Gabriel talks to Mary. Most movies and Christmas plays portray this encounter as a glowing angel appearing to a quiet, subdued Mary who immediately submits to the idea of becoming the mother of the Messiah. This picture here illustrates how many imagine the scene. So many times I have heard pastors extol Mary for her meekness and submissiveness, based especially on this passage where the angel Gabriel appears to her, and Mary submits to God's will. So the lesson seems obvious. Godly women are meek and submissive. We do well when we are like her. When I had to translate this passage from the Greek for an exam, though, I was surprised at how differently it came across to me. In the Greek, Mary was feisty. She gave Gabriel some pushback, and God approved. Now, this was a translation exam more than a Greek exam, and we were supposed to use a lexicon. I had wondered at first why the professor would give us that particular passage. Surely this is one of the most well-known passages of Scripture. I could translate it from memory and my experience watching countless Christmas plays. Wait, maybe that was the reason, I thought. He wanted to see if we would actually work through the translation process, even with a passage we thought we knew inside and out. As I worked through the passage with my lexicon, I was stunned to discover things I had never noticed from reading any English Bible translation. Gabriel first greets Mary with rejoice, favored one, the Lord is with you, as the CEB puts it, Common English Bible. Uh, Some others word it differently, but it's basically the same idea. The The text then says that Mary's response to this is that she was greatly troubled at his words. The word translated greatly troubled is the Greek word diatarakthe, which according to my lexicon means that she was greatly troubled, disturbed, agitated, perplexed, or confused. The text goes on to say that she wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Now, this is actually an odd response to an angel. We see other people in the Bible react very differently to angels. They're usually struck with reverence, awe, or even terror, not confusion or agitation. We can make more sense of this reaction if we realize that in the Greek there is no indication that Gabriel appeared to Mary as an angel. If he appeared to her as an ordinary man, which is not uncommon in the Bible, then her reaction is more understandable. 
Wouldn't Mary just know Gabriel was an angel? Not necessarily. Hebrews 13 tells us that many of us have entertained angels unaware, which means that many of us have probably had encounters with an angel or two that we did not realize were angels. Many movies depict the angel appearing to Mary inside her home, but the text does not tell us where she was. She is obviously alone, but houses in Nazareth were small and didn't afford much privacy. Outside her house in town would not have been very private either. My best guess is that she was in the countryside for some reason, perhaps gathering berries or wood for a fire. If Gabriel appeared to Mary as an ordinary man, this also helps to resolve some of the concern I've seen from some women, especially in light of the Me Too movement, about whether Mary could have really given consent. I believe that although God knew Mary's heart, he also still wanted her to be able to give and voice her consent. If Gabriel had shown up in a glorious form, she would have been in awe or fear, so it would have been difficult for her to feel like she really did have a choice. In any case, from what I see in the Greek, Mary is at first greatly troubled, but not afraid. She is also wondering what kind of greeting this is. We look at the greeting Gabriel says, and we think, it's just a plain old greeting. What's there to wonder about? But if we consider the cultural background, it becomes clearer why she felt that way. In that culture back then, men did not usually speak to women that they did not know in public unless they thought they might be promiscuous. Jesus would break this taboo many times, and his followers learned to do the same. But Jesus wasn't around yet. Mary was disturbed and wondering what kind of greeting this was because she couldn't believe a strange man was speaking to her. She may have been wondering, am I giving off the wrong vibe for this guy to think I'm the kind of woman he can speak to in public? I remember once when I was a college student in Spain. I was in Segovia admiring the aqueduct there. And by the way, as you can see here, this, this was actually built in the first century at the same time Jesus was alive. And that is... Uh, more, those uh, big stones there are not held in place by mortar, but just by, you know, tension. The Romans built that when they came to Spain. It's really an amazing, amazing thing to see if you're ever able to. Anyway, I was there admiring this wonderful thing, and a man I did not know greeted me and then asked to sleep with me. My reaction was diatarakthe, like Mary. I was disturbed, confused, agitated, and couldn't believe it was happening. I briefly wondered if I had inadvertently given off the vibe that I was the sort of girl he could realistically expect to be receptive to that question. Here's a picture of what I looked like back then. I was even wearing that same coat because it was December and it was cold. After my initial diatarakthe feelings of being disturbed, confused, and agitated, my feelings then quickly turned to alarm, wondering if I was safe. Mary probably went through the same progression of feelings because it is only now in the Greek that Gabriel uses her name and tells her not to be afraid. I'm not sure this was all that comforting to her, though. This man knows my name. How does he know my name? She may have thought. After all, Nazareth at that time only had about 400 people in it, and I'm sure Mary was familiar with all of them. She knew he was not from around there. Then Gabriel goes on to say that it's okay because she's going to be the mother of the Messiah. And if you have your Bibles open, you can even see how he goes on and on about how wonderful that will be. Okay, that's it. Mary is done being quiet and polite now. 
I envision her thinking something along the lines of, I don't know how this guy knows my name or why he thinks I'm going to hop in bed with him, but sweet-talking me into thinking that it'll be okay because I'll bear the Messiah is not going to make that happen. I envision her putting her hands on her hips, cocking her head, narrowing her eyes, and saying, just how is this going to happen because I am not having sex with any man? That's how her question reads in the Greek to me. Most English Bible translations say something like, how will this happen since I am a virgin? But Mary doesn't use the noun parthenos, virgin. She uses the present active tense of the verb ginosko, which is literally to know, but is also used figuratively to mean to have sexual intercourse. Our English translations water down the forcefulness of Mary's reply, but it's pretty stark in the Greek. I am not having sex with any man. This helps to explain why earlier, in this same chapter, the priest Zechariah is rebuked when he asks, but how will this happen since both my wife and I are very old, when Gabriel appeared to him and told him that he and his wife Elizabeth would have a son. But Mary is not rebuked for her, simple, her similar question because the circumstances were different. Although we are not told where Mary was when Gabriel came to her, we know exactly where Zechariah was the holy place of the temple. Since Gabriel appeared beside the altar of incense in the holy place of the temple, Zechariah knew he was talking to an angel from God. His question revealed doubt, even in light of divine revelation. Mary's question was more, back off, dude, I don't do that. I envision Gabriel smiling in approval to Mary. It is at this point that he gives her the assurance that it is the Holy Spirit and not himself that will cause her to conceive. He also lets her know that he knows details about her relative Elizabeth in far-off Jerusalem that an ordinary man from Galilee could not have known. Perhaps Gabriel showed Mary his glowing angel self to her at this point, or more likely, I think, it was the inside information about Elizabeth and the assurance that he was not looking to sleep with her that helped Mary realize he was really a messenger from God. Because it is only at this point that Mary's response softens in the Greek. She gives her consent. It was not coerced. She willingly accepts God's will. Looking at Mary's encounter with Gabriel in this light aligns with how we see Mary throughout the rest of the Gospels. She was always going somewhere, doing something, speaking her mind. She travels to Judea to see Elizabeth, We see her helping at a wedding in Cana where she actually, you know, gives Jesus some pushback too. Mary accompanies her other sons to go take charge of Jesus in Matthew 3. And that take charge means they were going to go try to force him to come home, whether he wanted to or not. She is there at the foot of the cross in Jerusalem as Jesus dies. And she is with all of the believers in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. Mary was indeed a virgin when Jesus was conceived in her by the Holy Spirit. She was good and righteous but a meek and mild little lady she was not. She was willing to make waves, stand up for what she knew to be right, go where she believed God wanted her to go, and speak her mind. We all, women and men, do well when we follow her example. I say women and men can learn from Mary because when I was part of a different denomination years ago, a pastor told me that he only preached about men from Scripture because he believed that men only learn from men in the Bible, whereas women can learn from either sex. That's, to put it in a technical term, hogwash. If God thought that, there wouldn't be any women in Scripture. 
but there are lots of women in the Bible's pages, and I believe God expects us all to learn from all of them. Scripture itself teaches us that all, or as the CEB says, every scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for showing mistakes, for correcting, and for training character, so that the person who belongs to God can be equipped to do everything that is good. Paul wrote that to Timothy in his last words before he was executed, something he considered so important that it was part of the things he wanted to make sure to say before he died. There are no pink parts of scripture that are just useful for girls and women and blue parts that are just useful for men and boys. It's just all scripture, and it is useful for all of us. So all of us can learn from Mary and from Joseph and from all of the other people of the Bible we are looking at today. But after the angel Gabriel left Mary, this isn't the end of it, of this part of the story. Right after her encounter with Gabriel, we see Mary head off to Jerusalem to see Elizabeth, Zachariah's wife, who also happened to be a relative of Mary. Did she tell her parents about Gabriel and what he said? No doubt she did, or they probably would not have let a 14 or 15-year-old girl, because that's how old Mary probably was, travel to far off Jerusalem. Did they believe her? We don't know. Scripture doesn't say. But if your 15-year-old daughter told you that, what would you think? Perhaps Mary's parents approved her trip to Jerusalem because they thought Aunt Elizabeth could talk some sense into her. I don't know. When Mary gets to Jerusalem, though, Elizabeth confirms everything Gabriel told her. Elizabeth feels her own baby jump with joy at the sound of Mary's greeting, and we are told that both Elizabeth and her baby, who, spoiler alert, is John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, that both of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Mary also receives anointing and proclaims prophecy about the Messiah she is going to bear. We call this her Magnificat. I wonder if Mary hadn't been second-guessing herself a little bit before this. After all, once Gabriel left, she might have been wondering, did that just happen what I think just happened? Elizabeth serves as a wonderful confirmation that in spite of how others might have reacted to her story, yes, this thing did happen. Mary stays about three months with Elizabeth, and the two women help and support each other very much. When it came time for Elizabeth to give birth, Mary left to go back to Nazareth, probably because in that culture it was not seemly for a pregnant woman to be there when another woman gave birth. By the time Mary gets back to Nazareth, she would be at least four months along in her own pregnancy, probably showing a baby bump. At this point, she's got to tell Joseph, her fiancé. And although most of us assume he took it well, I'm guessing he really didn't. We are told Joseph's point of view in Matthew 1, by the way. Joseph wasn't stupid. He knew women didn't get pregnant unless they had slept with a man. He knew he had not slept with her. In his mind, that could only mean that she had been unfaithful to him. If you don't really love me, Joseph may have told her, then tell me, but don't make up stories about messengers from God. They were betrothed, which in that culture at that time meant that Joseph was legally her husband, even though they did not sleep or live together until after the formal wedding ceremony. But as her legal husband, Joseph now had the right to not just divorce Mary for adultery, but to even have her executed. The law was that Mary should be stoned to death, as well as the man with whom she had been unfaithful. No man was stepping up, and Mary was sticking to her story that she was innocent, that the Holy Spirit had made her conceive without her having slept with any man. What was Joseph supposed to do with that? So he stewed. 
He was probably hurt and angry, but he also really loved Mary. He didn't want to see her executed. As her husband, he could keep that from happening, but he also felt that he couldn't marry her. If she had been unfaithful, he just couldn't go through with the marriage. And even if her crazy story might possibly be true, how could he interfere with God? So at the end of his tossing and turning, he came to the decision to just divorce her quietly. Nothing is really quiet in a small town, but this action would keep Mary alive, and Joseph may have thought it would allow her to marry the father of her baby should he be man enough to step forward. God waited until Joseph was determined what he, about what he was going to do. Then he sent the angel Gabriel to Joseph too in a vision at night. Gabriel told Joseph that Mary was telling the truth, that the baby she was carrying had been conceived of the Holy Spirit, and that he should go ahead and take Mary into his house as his wife, but to not sleep with her until after the baby was born. And Joseph obeyed. Now let's fast forward to Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem and the birth of Jesus, which we find in Luke chapter 2 this time. Okay? We know that they had to go to a stable-type area where Jesus was laid in that feeding trough manger because there was no room for them anywhere else. These pictures are from various places in Spain, by the way. Spaniards put up elaborate nativity scenes, which they call Belenes. We just put up the, you know, the manger area, whereas they recreate the entire city of Bethlehem. That's what Belen means, is Bethlehem. These are all from, these pictures here in the next slide, are all from the same Belen that Jeff and I saw in Malaga in 1996. They're just different parts of it because it was so huge you couldn't get it all in one picture. People go around looking at these Belenes the way we drive around looking at Christmas lights. They really are all unique and fascinating to see. But in any case, Luke tells us that the shepherds were staying in their fields with their sheep all night. This little clue tells us that it was not December when Jesus was born, but in the spring, probably around March or April, because that is when the lambs were being born. Shepherds didn't stay in the fields with their sheep at night, except when the ewes were birthing. The shepherds are there in the fields that night, and suddenly an angel appears. This time, we know that the angel appeared in all its glory, because the text says he did, and it also says that the shepherds were terrified. These shepherds don't look terrified enough. One thing I'd like to point out here is that there is no reason to think that the shepherds here were all male. Women worked as shepherds throughout the Bible, so it could very well be that some of the shepherds in that field that night were women. At any rate, the angel appears and is bursting with good news that the long-awaited Messiah has been born. Then suddenly, a whole host of angels appear with the first one, and they all proclaim, Glory to God in heaven, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. Now, in church Christmas plays, these angels are adorable. See how are these adorable little angels? There we go. But this is not what those angels looked like. The Greek word translated host means army. These angels were huge and powerful, and they were warriors. If our nativity plays were to be more accurate, we'd get men and women who were trained soldiers to appear in white, yes, but decked out in strength and power as warriors. In addition to that, they were glowing. So no wonder the shepherds were terrified. After the angels leave, the shepherds decide to go see the baby they were told about, which they did. After they worshipped him, they spread the word throughout the town about Jesus to whomever would listen. 
When Jesus was eight, day old, eight days old, Mary and Joseph took him to the temple to be circumcised, as the law said. Two elderly people, Simeon and Anna, were at the temple and prophesied to them about Jesus. Anna was a widow, and she was over 80 years old. She lived at the temple, so she was always there. Simeon was, didn't live at the temple, but he was led by the Spirit to go to the temple that day. Because both of them were there and listening to God's voice, they got to see the baby Messiah and prophesy about him. Now let's go back to Matthew and see the wise men. There are lots of misconceptions surrounding them. Some traditions call them the three kings, others the three wise men, and still others the magi, which I think is the more accurate term. Who were these people? Well, if Luke had been the one to tell us about them, we'd probably know a lot more for sure. But Matthew isn't as big on details and tells us only that they were from the east. Here's what most scholars think, however, and that is that these magi came from what would be Persia or modern Iraq and Iran. Why do they think this? Well, if you know biblical or Jewish history, you'll know that the Jews were conquered and taken into exile to Babylon beginning in 605 B.C., which is modern-day Iraq and parts of Iran. Now, I'm going to get to use my little pointer here, which I think is really cool. So this is where Jerusalem is, and this is where Babylon is. You can see how far away that is. And this is overlaid with the modern-day country borders. So you can see that here is Babylon in the middle of what would be Iraq, but you can see that the Persian Empire did spill over into what is Iran also. Okay? So that's where a lot of scholars think these guys were from. Okay. Uh, (coughs) Daniel and his three friends were captured and taken to Babylon where they were trained as magi. Magi were diviners, interpreters of dreams, and other mystical arts. They read the stars and were intimately intimately familiar ah, with the movements of stars and planets. Daniel would end up serving many Babylonian and Persian kings as one of a group of magi for about 70 or more years. He had a lot of influence among the magi. Tradition is that Daniel left writings about the Jewish God and the Jewish Messiah, and that the magi, 600 years later, uh, in Jesus' day, were those who believed these writings and were looking for the fulfillment of prophecy. They were not Jewish. They probably had just a little knowledge about God, but they acted on what little they had, and God honored that. One misconception we have about these men, and these were almost certainly men, is that there were three of them. We really don't know how many there were. We say three because three different gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, are mentioned. In reality, they probably had a large delegation because traveling so far with such expensive gifts would have been dangerous for a small group. As in these pictures, traditions often like to include people from all different races as the Magi, and that's a great idea because it is trying to be inclusive of various non-Jewish people groups. But in reality, these guys were probably Persian, which means that they would have looked more like modern Iranians. They would have probably been dressed differently, but their physical features would have been more similar than different to those in Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Another misconception about these magi is that they showed up in Bethlehem at the same time as the shepherds, but they did not. The star they followed did not appear until Jesus was born, 
and they didn't hop into a jet plane or even an automobile to travel 1,200 miles in just a day or two. It would have taken several months or even a year at the very least. And Matthew's gospel supports that. When the Magi arrive, they first go to King Herod to find out the exact location of where this new king had been born. That was news to Herod, who was paranoid and power-hungry. So he called the, the scribes and the priests, ugh, can't talk, to find out where prophecy said the Messiah would be born. They told him Bethlehem, and he pointed the Magi on their way, asking them to come back and tell him where the baby was after they found him. He told them that he wanted to worship the baby too, but he was lying, as we all know. He really wanted to kill him. The Magi go to Bethlehem, and there they find Mary, Joseph, and the child, Jesus, he's not called a baby, I think he's a child, living in a house, not in that smelly stable. Seems like the family had decided to settle in Bethlehem, which makes sense, because Nazareth certainly wasn't a comfortable place to be. The gifts the Magi brought were fit for a king. God tells them in a dream to not go back to Herod, so they leave without going back through Jerusalem. God also tells Joseph in a dream to immediately get up and flee to Egypt, however, and they escape. No doubt the gifts the Magi brought financed their trip. When Herod realizes the Magi left without telling him where Jesus was, he ordered that all of the baby boys aged two and under in Bethlehem to be killed. Since he had already killed his first wife and two of his own sons because he thought they were a threat to his throne, doing this was not out of character for him at all. It is only after the king Herod dies that God tells Joseph that it is safe to go back home to Nazareth. Jesus is most likely a toddler or even a preschooler by then. Now, we could untangle many more people in the Christmas story, but our time is limited. But now what? Why is it important to clear up misconceptions we might have about the Christmas story? Because of the lessons we learn from it. Remember how we noted that when we realized that Mary was not meek and mild, no, she was willing to make waves and stand up for what was right and to do what she knew God wanted her to do and to go where God wanted her to go? If we have the wrong idea about her, then we won't be inspired to follow her example in the right way. So what do we learn from the others we untangled? From Elizabeth, we learn that just as God used her to confirm to Mary what she had heard and what would happen, so God does this for us as well. He will often confirm his will to us from other people. From Joseph, we learn that sometimes God lets us stew about a serious problem for quite a while so that we can learn how to discern his will. From the shepherds, we learn that when angels show up in glory, it is terrifying, even when they have good news. From the Magi, we learn that God values all people, even those who know very little about him. We learn that when we act on what little light we have, God will then give us more light. We also learn that we never know how much influence we will leave behind, even after we are gone, like Daniel and his writings. But these things we have just said are not the main thing I want us to learn from the people of the Nativity story this morning. The main thing is to consider what all of these people had in common. They all heard a message from God, and they all had to choose whether they would believe and act on it. God speaks to us in different ways. With Mary, Gabriel showed up in person, but with Joseph, he appeared in a dream. With Mary, Gabriel appeared as an ordinary man, I believe, but with the shepherds, the angels appeared in all of their glory. So how does God speak to us? 
Most of us are not going to knowingly hear from an angel. Most of us are not going to have a new star appear in the sky. But God still speaks to us every day in many different ways. You don't need to worry that you won't be able to hear from God. The Magi did not have the Bible, nor did they know much about him. But they knew the stars, and God spoke to them in the way he knew that they could best hear and understand. When they chose to act upon what little light they received from God, he gave them even more light. In the end, they worshipped Jesus, and even though they were pagans from a far-off land, they became part of Jesus' birth story and were able to please and worship God. I don't doubt that we will see them in heaven. God knows you better than you know yourself, and he loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. Stop and think about that for a moment. The God of the universe wants to have a relationship with you. The shepherds were the lowliest of people around that night. They were kind of like garbage collectors today. Their job was necessary, but it was dirty and smelly and hard work, and most people preferred that someone else do it. When the prophet Samuel had gone through all of David's older brothers looking for the one God had told him to anoint as king, he had to ask his father Jesse if he had any more sons. You know what Jesse said? Only the youngest, but he's a shepherd out with the sheep. He's a nobody. You can't be interested in him. But God was. He was interested in the shepherds that nobody else cared about that night Jesus was born. And he is interested in you, too. And because he knows you so well, God will speak to you in ways he knows that you will be able to hear and understand, even if it's not with a star or a glowing angel. However, know this. God doesn't usually shout. Sometimes he does but most of the time he doesn't. He cares about our consent and doesn't want to override us. He speaks to us, but we can choose to ignore him. The Magi could have shrugged their shoulders at the star. Mary could have told herself Gabriel was just a guy. Joseph could have told himself it was just a dream. Simeon and Anna could have ignored the nudging in their hearts to go to the temple that day. You see, God is always speaking to us, but we won't always hear him unless we are ready to listen. So how do we listen? By looking for God, by wanting to hear his voice, by paying attention when he speaks. A major way God speaks to us is through the Bible. So if you're not reading your Bible, you are cutting off a major way that God uses to speak to you. Okay? But we can pray before we read scripture. And, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry, <coughs> I'm getting over bronchitis. <coughs> we can pray before we read scripture and ask God to speak to us. Sometimes when I read the Bible, God's voice is subtle, but sometimes the words jump off the page and accost me. Sometimes God speaks to us through other people, as he spoke through Elizabeth to Mary, especially if those people are mature Christians, but sometimes even when they're not. Sometimes while we are praying, thoughts pop into our heads that we know didn't originate with us and that we can tell could only have come from God. Sometimes it's a subtle nudging in our spirit as it was with Simeon and Anna, to go a certain way, do a certain thing, or say a certain thing. Learning to pay attention to these nudges comes with experience, and I have learned to recognize them. I have also learned that when I ignore them, I always regret it later. And that's a really good way of how I learned to recognize them. I would feel a nudging to do something, I would ignore it, later I would regret it, and then I'd look back, and you always know, 20, you know hindsight's twenty twenty. I would look back and I'd say, you know, I think that was God telling me to do that, and I ignored it, and I regret it. And after having that happen several times, like, I, you know, I remember what that felt like, that nudging felt like, and now I regret not following it, so now I'm going to try to remember 
what that felt like for next time. That's how we learn to notice the nudgings of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And sometimes God will actually speak to us clearly as though he were physically in the same room with us, though that is not the way he usually does. So the three questions I want us to consider today are, how is God speaking to you? Because he is speaking to you. How is he doing it? Two, are you listening for his voice or are you ignoring him? And will you act on what you hear? As the band comes back up, I want us to ponder these three questions and try to honestly answer them in our hearts and purpose that we will listen for God's voice and act on what we hear.